Hey guys, you like science? You like learning? We can't cover everything on this podcast, certainly not as in-depth as I'd like to all of the time. Well, here's an important topic you need to know about. Water. Do you have it? Are you drinking it? Where is it coming from? All sorts of important questions you need to know. There is now the new Waterline podcast, which is an initiative of the Israel New Tech, a part of the Israeli Ministry of Economy and Industry. Waterline podcast aims to bring the latest scientific advances in technological solutions while exploring economic models and identifying key players in the global effort to secure water sources, create efficient water usage, and make water safe for everyone. I just checked out a really cool, interesting episode called Want Not, Waste Not, Wastewater. It's all about what happens to your wastewater. It's going to waste a lot of times, but does it need to? Absolutely not. What happens to all that discarded wastewater? Once treated, it has uh, economic and ecological value that can even drive nation's economies. It could even light up your house. How? Find out on that episode of the Waterline Podcast. Search Waterline Podcast on iTunes or in your Android podcast app. Welcome to the Here We Are Podcast. Thank you for downloading. Thanks for listening. You're in for a treat today. Not only does my guest have a degree in everything that there is, but she is also a wonderful host, invited me into her lovely home in St. Louis, and then proceeded to unleash a wonderful a ball of enthusiasm and insights for your enjoyment. If you like this, and I know you will, please do not forget to subscribe, share, rate, review. All that good stuff helps me out a bunch. And in the meantime, enjoy the fantastic Hillary Anger Elfenbein. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody. Welcome to the Here We Are podcast. My name is Shane Moss, and I am here with uh, Hillary Anger. Elfenbein, my favorite name so far of the podcast. That is uh, it's a doozy. It's, it's a lot coming at you at once. Thank you. And you actually pronounce it correctly. So you are the Boom, best. Elfenbein. I was thinking it was Elfenbein, um, possibly, when I was reading it. Um, and I was kind of hoping it was Elfenbein, but really? it's Elfenbein. Well, I don't I know why I like a bean sound better, like elves and beans. I don't know what it's, it's doing something to my brain that's stimulating it in a fun way and i'm not sure what but uh fine's fine too it's fine that you go by that well it's good that i got my first disappointment for you out of the way <laughs> <laughs> um you know i think sometimes you know, people get caught up in titles and then they meet me and i you know, i as we discussed earlier i look a lot younger than i am and they they meet me and i'm i'm really quite ordinary in person um, I'm, I'm pretty ordinary in person too. I think I, people get, um, it's weird when people will like, uh, 
uh, after a show, uh, like, uh, you know, people will kind of avoid eye contact or something like that sometimes. And then I'll get all these Facebook messages. I wanted to say hi, but I was nervous. And I was like, oh, I thought you just didn't like the show. (laughs) Perhaps you were just nervous because you thought I was a much bigger deal than I am. Well, you really are quite intimidating, too. (laughs) (laughs) Well, especially with the crutches. Oh, yeah. You don't want to see this crutching at you in a dark alley. I like that you're already giving me a hard time. I think we're gonna get along great. Is like you you listen to uh, Rob Tanner's episode and uh, and you're like, well, that worked for him. He you can so now you're the second person that's had uh, that's had the uh, the courage to make yeah. fun of a comedian. I respect that. Yeah, well, you know, it was a little bit weird getting an email out of the blue, and yeah. I was glad that my good friend Pete uh, McCraw emailed me later to say he's actually real. Don't worry, this isn't one of those. Uh, uh, you know, av- emails from a- some prince in Africa who <laughs> <laughs> has a special deal for you. And- oh, man, I wish I was that prince in Africa with all the gold that I have to hide and like all the currency. I just need you to store it for me. You can still give me all of your account numbers. I'll take them, you sure. know. And, you know, I was actually a bit nervous for this. And my husband and I watched your show, uh, some of your shows and I was still nervous. And then we ended up watching part of Getting Dug with High and then we thought, well, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I thought, well, this is somebody who gets high on TV for stuff. So I think, yeah, I think on YouTube, it. but sure. I mean, it's all the same these oh, days. YouTube? Yeah, okay. yeah. Well, never mind. Uh, I'm yeah, still, I'm still intimidated perfectly. by you. Though. You know, it's funny because I don't smoke much. Well, I talk about it on there. I smoke like a head of weed a week. I'm sure to you that sounds like a lot uh, when I'm talking to a professor. If, you're, if your students were like, I have like one hit, you wouldn't be like, oh, that's a good modest amount. You'd be like, you have a, a, a marijuana problem. That's what I imagine a professor well, would say. Well, you know, so um, when we when we watched the first thing we watched yeah. of yours was the Comedy Central show, and you look very clean cut in that. I don't know what when that was from, but but um, when well, you talked about doing mushrooms and going to Best Buy, my oh, husband yeah. said, I don't know if it's believable. He really doesn't look like the kind of person who would do drugs. Oh yeah, no, I I like psychedelics a lot. I just did I just did some a few days ago. <laughs> Actually, DMT—it's the world's most powerful hallucinogen. <laughs> well, so, so, so um, I grew up in New York, and in the in the mid '80s, the crack academic, a- epidemic had just started getting to be a big, big problem. And so they they actually had us take a day off from school, a day off from normal lessons for crack day. I am not making this up. I'm sure you could Google it. And it was the entire, all high schools throughout New York City. And um, so I went to a nerd high school. I went to Stuyvesant High School. And I'm really proud. I want to give a shout out about Stuyvesant. It's, um, It's a math and science school. And it has the most Nobel laureates in the world from any high school. Although I don't, don't quote me, but uh, Bronx science might be up there. And they, uh, and it has uh, the most people who go on to get PhDs. So in high school, we would talk about what we were going to do for grad school. People didn't talk about what they were going to do for college. So it was, it was nerdville. It was revenge of the nerds kind of place. And so we had to, we also took a day off to talk about crack. And they, <laughs> they had this assembly where this, this teacher said, crack is more, taking crack is more powerful, is 10 times more powerful than an orgasm and everyone looked at each other and said i had no idea uh, <laughs> it was like a publicity stunt for crack. yeah yeah that's a terrible well i don't know i've never smoked i i once smoked cocaine when i was about 17 years old i didn't know that's what crack was as i was 17 i didn't know anything and 
It was um, did it wasn't like ten orgasms. It was ten orgasms like is way better. Yeah, yeah, it was like oh, it was like what? two kind of awkward orgasms you know, if it were, that you yeah. feel real bad about afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, oh, I shouldn't have had those orgasms. That was real stupid. Um, but yeah, it was psychedelics crack. Those are two very different psychedelics is for people that, that like me that are interested in neuroscience and how our visual perception comes together. Crack is for people that need to escape yeah. reality. And now, before we stop talking about drugs, so, um, <laughs> so you, you just I know that first off, you brought this up. I was not, I, I had a whole lesson plan prepared, as you can up, see yeah. by my blank pages in front of me. Um, so, so before we stop talking about drugs, so, right. I, so you, you just met me, so you don't know. I, I recently, in the last few years, lost um, 65 pounds. And um, it's very wow. life-changing in a lot of ways. Um, one is that you realize how much prejudice there is against fat people mm-hmm. because people treat you dramatically differently. But the other thing... Is, how so? Oh, just the, you know... Well, I study nonverbal behavior, and it's hard to put nonverbal behavior into words. Mm-hmm. So it's hard to address, but I, I think... I don't know, people smile at me more. I just get better treatment if I need something. I, I, I just feel like... Like in general, and you know what people comment, people who know you comment about how great you look, and then you realize how bad they thought you looked. Oh, uh, right? yeah, yeah. And, well, yeah, I mean, hmm. And people you don't I mean, know. I got that when I started working out, and I was always like, I was still like attractive enough, like with, uh, yeah, I would get attractive girls and all of that stuff. But then, I mean, really taking care of yourself, it's like there's just a lot of, old evolved ancestral um uh, physical cues to health and although the cues for what's healthy you know vary so much across culture but also the, yeah. the creepiest part is that people you really don't think we're looking maybe scrutinizing your body all that much start to comment so i'm um, very senior people at the university i never realized i never realized that guy was looking at my anyway so uh, it, well this is and this is also what you study is so, so so real quick to bring it back around to psychedelics so um one of the things that the, <laughs> that the nutritionist warns i can't you, believe we're having this conversation this is, is awesome is that when you lose a lot of weight a lot of toxins um come out in your your body because so many so much toxin is stored in the fat you know mm. mercury and other pollutants they get stored in your fat so when you lose a lot of fat you're suddenly getting poisoned and mm. you can have acid flashbacks, so they actually have to warn you this because it gets stored in your in your fat. I didn't, ah. I didn't have this problem, and whoever's listening should know I, I didn't have this problem. But okay. it's just one of these interesting. Uh, oh. So you have to do huh. a lot of you know pro uh, you know a lot of um, antioxidants. So like you're an aging hippie, all of a sudden you get your life together and all this, and start working out, and then next thing you know, you're back in the '60s and free love and and uh jerry garcia and all of that stuff that's interesting <laughs> just because you uh, just because you went to decide to go to crossfit one day uh i didn't know about that that's um that is amazing i'm reading a book about hallucinogens right now I'm oliver sacks hallucinations it's called and uh i haven't heard that part yet um well okay so obviously we have very different backgrounds but this is um one we've already united about psychedelics you're at least comfortable enough talking to them and making fun of the fact that i get high on youtube so i already like that about you um i so my background was like a lot of blue collar stuff a lot of 
crappy construction jobs and uh, factory work and um, and stuff like that. And and a lot of your work has to do with um, kind of dynamics in the workplace. And actually, even before that, you know what I was really interested in um, since we're since we're talking about psychedelics that let, let's let's jump down the rabbit hole quick and talk about because this podcast is really about kind of what makes us who we are and um and you know who is this person shane moss that i am is like a different person when i'm alone in a hotel when other people are viewing me on a stage you're watching me on on youtube uh getting dug with high and you know these are these are all me wearing these different hats but it's not just like who i am is also um how others see me is is a big part of who we are and we always i mean i think everyone kind of obsesses about you know you said with losing weight and everything we obsess about how people perceive us but one thing that i thought was interesting and i, I didn't i didn't dig into this a lot but because i was hoping you'd um tell me about it is that it, uh, that i haven't really given a lot of thought to is that um the the brain the brain plays this trick of thinking like all these things are stable our personality is like this stable static state and and everyone's perceiving us in the same way and like uh, i have these friends they think i'm a friendly funny nice guy so everyone in the world must think this about me um but you you've done some work on how individuals can perceive kind of the same person differently right yeah so um so this has been a bit of a of a uh, one of these mysteries and research that people abandoned for de- for decades and then a few people myself included have picked back up so the idea of meta accuracy how well we think uh, how how accurately we know what other people think of, of us. And it's one of these topics where it's obviously so important, and yet academics kind of overlooked it largely because there was this idea that you just can't. So there are two kinds of meta-accuracy. There's two ways you can be accurate about what other people think of you. One is what's called... Um, individual, well, the individual level. So I might know what other people think of me in general. So if you ask a lot of people, if you took 10 people and you asked everyone... To, to describe themselves and to describe what they think each of those other people think of them. If you take the average, people are actually pretty, people's average of what they think each person thought of them and the average of what those people actually thought of them tend to coincide pretty well. And that's been well established and that's been researched continuously. But what the, what those studies tended to show that was a bit of a mystery was that people weren't good on the dyadic level by which, um, if I thought you were, can unusual, you define that? Sure, sure. So if, if, if I thought you particularly liked me compared to how much everybody else liked me, did you actually particularly like me compared to everyone else? And this is about relationships. So I might know how the rest of the world sees me. I think the rest of the world sees me as extroverted, but, but do you particularly, does that person, does that person see me as shy, but this person sees me as extroverted because they're seeing different sides of me? And maybe that, that It's I, shocking I, that there's someone out there that would find you shy. <laughs> so go on. <laughs> It's funny because I, I live, I think, in a lot of academics, I live such a, a split existence because about 75% of the time I'm, I'm by myself in front of a computer and about 25% of the time I'm extremely social. 
And uh, that's that ends up being a really nice mix because I love spending time around other people. But I, I guess uh, in I, I guess my I, I'm truly an introvert in the sense that that then my energy is spent and I need to be alone. So it's been it's a great mix. But you know, a lot of uh, actually a lot of people who see you on stage as a professor think I want to be a professor, and then you have to break the news that 75 percent of the time they're actually just be sitting in front of a computer and they're like, yeah. This, I don't want to do this, um, but uh, oh, where it's going about you know, about okay being shy that that you might that that can, do you know what other people in particular think of you and actually maybe I'll use liking rather than personality because this is where the the, the work that I do kind of fit, fits in more is that you know I, I might think in general I'm pretty likable but that th- does do you particularly like me compared to other people versus does that person actually dislike me maybe I'm di- I'm likable in general but I know that that person doesn't like me. Mm. And that's what's called dyadic accuracy or, or relationship meta accuracy because it's about my particular relationship with you, my particular relationship with them, not in general how the world sees me. And in 1993, actually a very close mentor of mine, um, David Kenny was on a paper with Bella DePaolo uh, are advocating basically that we can't do this. We're not accurate. We might know what the whole world thinks of us in general, but I'm not particularly good at knowing if you like me more than most. And the reason it might look like I am, but it's all projection. So all we don't know if other people like us. All we know is that I like you, so I think you must like me. And in general, liking tends to be reciprocated. Mm. And therefore, it's all just an, a mirage. We yeah, have yeah, no idea. We have no idea what the world thinks of us. All we know is we just we project, and it's just all in our heads. Yeah, is that, that's it. so. You're welcome for all of those new insecurities, listeners. Uh, <laughs> I mean, I do think sometimes I do look at some people not to like. You know, confidence is one of those odd things in life where it's just like. It's one of the most important things you can have, and it's one of the silliest things that you can have at the same time. And sometimes you see these people with just like this boundless enthusiasm for like everything all the time and assuming every. And uh, I'm just like, well, I find you kind of annoying. <laughs> I think a lot of people probably do too. It's like it's a little much sometimes. But the problem is that you don't get good feedback from the environment because you probably you probably share that maybe in gossip with uh, with third parties. But you're probably polite enough to that person to their face that they don't get that information. Oh man! So what's the solution? Uh, <laughs> like, well, I, I, yeah. be meaner to yeah. people's faces. Well, I mean, there there are different kinds of mechanisms. So in a workplace, not that you want to give people feedback about how likable they are, but a lot of likability um, ends up. Uh, you know, people who have good emotional skills tend to be more likable, and and that's an example of a. Of, of a workplace competency that you can get feedback on through the kind of 360 degree appraisals that we often use for other skills. So I think getting, getting right. So if you break skills, down, mm-hmm. if you don't use the word likability and break it down a bunch into a, a bunch mm-hmm. of very specific categories, maybe it's not yeah. so insulting if, yeah. if, uh, if you're like, Sometimes yeah. you're like uh, a little overly yeah. ambitious or something like that. The other thing you can do is actually try to be more sensitive. You know, we don't want to know, right? It's not that there are no cues in the environment. It's that the cues tend to be masked to save our face, and we don't want to know. Mm. Now, you might just say you don't want to know, and you have to ask yourself, how useful is it to know somebody doesn't like you? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, this, uh, I I like um, I I don't know enough about it, but uh, uh, some of Robert Trevor's research. I don't know if you're familiar, but he does a lot of stuff about the evolution of self deception and how we all just kind of uh, our brains just have as a program. It's like we all think of ourselves as a bit more attractive than, uh, than we are, a bit more intelligent than we are, and a bit. And and you see this, and uh, I mean, he's not the first person to point this out, but he talks about just kind of the evolution. And these researchers argue that 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 the economy would shut down if we didn't have this, right? Because yeah. you look at entrepreneurs, and they are overconfident because the chances of success for a new business um, lasting more than a year are some relatively low percent. But you ask them, uh, well, how likely is it your business will succeed? And it's far greater than whatever that that uh, pessimistic chances are. And then they try, and you know, some, you know, some proportion, most of them maybe fail, but at least the ones who tried maybe wouldn't have tried if they actually had any idea how unlikely. It was. Yeah, and you need it. I mean, uh, I I wanted to, you know, this is everyone. I don't think I've talked about this on the podcast, but this is a very standard question for inter- when I'm interviewed: is how old were you when when you decided you wanted to be a stand up? And I was so young; I was like nine years old, some somewhere right around there. I was really, really young, and I tell people: I mean. You know, I can't live outside my own head and see the world through other people's eyes. But I can't. Some of these people are like 35 years old and are like, I want to be a comedian. And I can't imagine being an adult that's lived in this world full of like practicalities and downers and has had uh, failure ingrained in them for 35 years and still thinking, I'm going to get on stage and make the world laugh and love me. But that might be why. That might be why, because right. they've seen the doldrums of the rest. They, they've seen the alternatives. Right. Uh, yeah, that's true. I mean, there was definitely an aspect of I didn't have anything else going for me. and I, My back was against the wall a bit. But I still think like that childlike enthusiasm and gullibility is a big part of like what what drove me to want it in the first place and then what ended up when I was like 23 and oh you already made this plan and now you didn't work through uh, school or do anything and now you don't have a backup plan so you better make this work for so you. I'm interested in those years of yours between the time when you decided not to go to college not to follow that traditional background mm-hmm. and the time you succeeded so what were you what was the internal narrative during those years did you know you were you were going to get that next break or did you ever think I uh, if it doesn't work out or I, did, did you ever have a backup plan or did you were you still that optimistic during that, that time? well I don't know so I always thought like I was going to be some uh, famous stand-up comedian. I did think that and like a fanciful. I don't know if I'm like uh, um, bipolar or something like that or, or if I used to be and it's calmed down or something. I feel like maybe when I was a kid, you know, when you're a child, kind of your emotions bounce around a lot anyway. But I definitely um, would have doubts sometimes, and that would lead to um, some depression and stuff like that. But, but I remember when I was younger. Um, yeah, I mean, the plan was just my eighteen. I'm out of here. I'm gonna move. I'm gonna be a big time stand up comic. And then I turned eighteen, and I was like, well, I should probably save a little money first, and then move. And so. You know, I took some jobs. The plan was just to save up a few thousand dollars and then 
drank too much finally was uh you know having fun and becoming popular for the first time in my life and enjoying that and and drinking and and uh and meeting girls and that sort of thing and just lots of distractions for me and then um and kind of bouncing around and i i had a factory job for four years or so and then i was about as on my 23rd birthday i was just like well this is awful this now were is, you doing comedy all that time were those no, just day no. jobs the, no or was on the dream anything. was on hold okay no yeah it was just um i didn't want to i didn't want to perform anywhere in my um in my hometown i just i uh, well, yeah, your jokes I, were too raunchy uh, well yeah i guess i i mean the idea of being judged by strangers isn't so bad mm-hmm. to me but people that you know yeah. that seems like very scary so the plan was to move, and so yeah. Like your family might not think it's funny home. that you have a hole in your butt. Yeah, yeah, that's that sort of thing, and uh, <laughs> and it did take them some time to get around to. Yeah, and do, you, do they ever see you perform? What's that like I, for you? Yeah, it's 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 less awkward as time goes by. Mm-hmm. You know, it's uh, it's it's funny um, because Hillary emailed me and was telling me she's like. I love asking people about their lives and what they do. So it's weird that you're coming here to ask me about yourself. And I'm not. I'm, uh, <laughs> now I've turned it around. I'm yeah, you just you. completely turned it around. <laughs> Whatever you're comfortable yeah. doing. Well, um, and I have so many but, thoughts about what you're saying. No, it's no, 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 no. That's uh, that's great. Because you're speaking I to this. all these issues about calling. You know your relationship to work, and you know you're you're thinking about well, you know, you know you're you were struggling with the question of what other people thought of you, and and that that raises the point that you know a lot of times you know we we might think other people have different differential opinions of us because we're literally in different situations with them or it could be that we're doing the same thing but just some people like us and some people don't and you you manage to kind of separate out your your you know your situations and that's you know yeah i mean i still like i look back and i'm like how did i do it i, I don't understand like I, because i was so confused i mean I, I don't feel confused as so much anymore. I mean, depending on, it's kind of like a fractal understanding of life where the deeper you go, it just remains the same level of confusion. But, um, but I feel like I have a much greater understanding of who I am and everything else. And back then, I was just, all that I knew was I wanted to be a stand-up comedian. Everything else in life was just a whole mess of, I didn't know what was going on. That's great. Well, you know, to a very much, much, much lesser extent, I'm also in a profession where the number of people who start out thinking they want to become a professor and the number of people who can ever pay their rent or pay a mortgage being a professor is very small. I mean, nothing like you probably, I don't know, ten, you're one in 10,000, maybe I'm one in 100 or, or, yeah, or so. I'm like one in 1,000 probably. Who can retire? Like of all the people who say I want to do stand up, what percent do you think can retire having paid the bills on that job? Well, I don't know that I'm going to be able to retire. Of course you are. Um, Yeah, I mean, at (laughs) some point. um, I mean, for comics that get to my level or higher, I would say uh, one in a thousand. That, of people that try it, give it a shot, May, maybe not terribly seriously, but at least try it, do an open mic or something like that. One in a thousand, probably. 
Uh, For us, part of it, and the reason so so many people think they want to get a PhD, don't finish it, or, or get an academic job, don't finish it, is that there's just so much rejection involved, and it's so slow. The, the process is slow, so you, um, y- it takes years from the time you might have the best idea you've ever had to the time that anyone uh, gives it any positive feedback. It might literally be years, and people give up. It's very you, 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 um, the, the best journals accept 9% of the articles that are sent to them, which means that just if you're just throwing darts at a wall, you're getting rejected 91% of the time. If you're a star, you know, you're, you're doing well. You're, you're eating and paying the mortgage if you're, if only 70% of your work gets rejected. And if, if you're just 50 50, you get rejected half the time, you're a star. Yeah. And so I think for a lot of people, that's very difficult. Now, for me, I think actually, I think Jews are slightly overrepresented among academics because we're <laughs> quite happy comedy. with rejection. You know? Yeah, yeah, because we, we like rejection. I mean, I don't say we like rejection, but it's very comforting. You know, your grandmother, the, the way she shows she loves you, she shows she's paying attention to you by criticizing you. Right, because oh, oh you know that skirt, not such a good skirt on you. Do you? I think I like that other sweater more. And she's saying that because she genuinely thinks she's helping you. And so, if you approach these reviews, you know, you might do the best work of your life, and you get back twelve pages about everything that's wrong with it. And that, you, just, you know, if you can look at that and say they cared enough about me to write twelve pages about my work, then I think you can stay in the game. And I wonder uh. if it's like that with with comedy where you have you kind of learn to accept rejection can't get you down well i mean mm-hmm. it's like comedians don't get a 12 page constructive criticism we get like uh this sucks on a youtube <laughs> comment that's like our, it's like well how do i cater to that person who, who watched three seconds and, and decided that he didn't like the way that I looked or sounded or something like that. And it's just, at, I, I would say that, um, I, I don't know if it's different, but, and, and this is saying, this coming out of my mouth right now is a little more wishy-washy than what my normal perspective is on life. But I would say that, um, that, comedy more than anything you just ultimately have to throw your hands up and just be like well I can just only do what I do and be myself because it's just too impossible to predict you know you can kind of predict like what we're talking about what people in a group might overall but a random audience in a town you've never been in in a club that you don't know what kind of audience they're procuring um, I mean one one town one city can have three clubs that are completely different, completely different audiences, completely different feels to them. And there's, it's just one of those things at a certain point, there's just too much information to gather. There's too many variables. It's like, it's like, you know, all, all of life is we're, we're born and we kind of have to, uh, home in on, on this spectrum of information that we want to take in. Do we want to, do we want to, know every single grain in this table eh, it's just a table you know at a certain point and that's kind of what you have to ultimately yeah. do with. you know and I, I think that's not unlike the the attitude i have about 
what it takes to succeed in academia is that you have to you have to enjoy the work for itself and you don't care what other people think of it. And I think a lot of my paper, I think of a lot of my papers as being like babies. And if you think um, that, you know, so I have, I have two children and they're they, they are truly adorable. And if somebody were to say, you know, people always comment about how pretty your children, oh, your children are so cute. And the fact is you actually don't care if they don't. If you don't think my child is cute, I just don't care. I know they're cute. And so if, if you feel that way about the work you're doing. I have a lot of jokes like that. <laughs> You know, I mean, I just, I love what I do. And I think, you know, we were starting to talk before about um, one of the things I think that's been helpful. So the work I'll always be best known for is work I did in spite of extremely famous people telling me it was a waste of time. And I just still thought the baby was pretty. In fact, so, the, so you know, I, I, we were talking before. So my, my undergrad majors, I, I have a very eclectic list of degrees. We talked about how you, you, know, you, uh, you didn't go to college. I have my five degrees from Harvard. I was what we called a degree collector. And I don't say that to brag. I actually say it to, to put myself down because the degree collectors are the people who are not really sure what they want to do when they grow up. But it, it's comfortable if you stay in school. That's a thing. Mm-hmm. You don't have to uh, you know, admit that you really are, are uh, kind of aimless. But I, I double majored in undergrad in physics and Sanskrit. And there are a whole lot of reasons for that. But actually, I think it was one of the most practical things I could ever do. At the time, I really double majored in physics because I needed something to tell people when they asked me what I was majoring in because I couldn't say Sanskrit and, and listen to, especially my grandmother. You know, she came from she came from the Russian-Polish border with just what she could carry. And two generations later, her, you know, her da- you know, granddaughter was in the Ivy League. And actually, my father was, was well-educated. He dropped out of a PhD in economics uh, in, in in the the fifties, and he, they, my parents were hippies, and I grew up poor, really, because they were hippies, not because um, they weren't. Uh, you, you didn't. They kind of had their act together, but so I, you know, so if I told my grandmother after all that, yeah, I went to Harvard and made just to major in Sanskrit, she would just have fallen over. And so you know, so physics, at least you could tell that to people. But I actually think Sanskrit turned out to be the most practical thing I could have ever done, it, it, because it, um, I think it gave me the the forever perspective of being an outsider and the sense of humor about any of the career aspects because uh, you know people think oh it's so hard to get a job and you know oh they're complaining and oh will I succeed you know and I mean I, there aren't a lot of undergrads doing Sanskrit, so you're very integrated in with the, the, the grad students and the community. And I look, you know, literally when, when you're finishing your PhD in Sanskrit, your advisor's calling up people around the world asking how their health is. So you're waiting for someone to die. Hey, <laughs> so-and-so looks like they're ready for retirement. You know, so I have this, this I, for, I forever have this model of people who are doing what they love. And my, my Sanskrit professor, James Benson, who's now at, at Oxford, said to me, you know, if you're thinking about pursuing Sanskrit, you got to ask yourself, is there anything else in the world you would love? One, one hundredth as much. And if so, do that thing. But the only excuse to, to do Sanskrit is if you just, you can't imagine yourself doing anything else. So I've always, I've always thought that that was a great model. And I knew leaving, finishing physics, finishing Sanskrit, I didn't want to do either of them. Physics, especially the, they were just canceling this uh, superconductor, super collider project. And there was rampant unemployment in the physics uh, area. So, so I go on and take this corporate job having no idea what to do. And that management consulting had just become such a big thing. And they were trying to find people who, quote unquote knew how to think but had no background in business 
So I do this, and it was miserable. I stayed there two years to the day. I actually took time off in the middle, but I stayed there two years to the day because two years means you graduated from it instead of dropped out of it. And I made some of my best friends there. I met my husband. You take uh, people take people right out of college, work them 75 hours a week, and let them have free dinner if they stay past seven. So a lot of, a lot of people hooked up. They had a very uh, enlightened attitude towards office romance. You just had to tell the staffer not to staff you together. So the staffer got to know all the gossip. Uh, he that was fun for him, um, <laughs> but uh, but they, there was uh, the, there was a life changing moment for me that got me interested in in, uh, in in workplace psychology, which was that my office got moved to next to the mailboxes, and. I, you know, again, I'm older than I look. This was before the internet. This was back when we had pieces of paper and they were eight and a half inches by 11 inches and people went to get them and, and people communicated this way. And so uh, people would always drop by to get paper mail, you know, and, and so they would, my office was right next to that. So people would always stop by and we would get to chatting about their day. And, and invariably this was, I want to say 90% complaining, right? Um, kvetching, as, as we, we say in Yiddish. Right. And, and so this was the most fun part of my day. I realized this was actually my favorite part of the day. So I, I started getting these, uh, these, these vitamin C wafers that I've, I've never found. They don't sell them anymore, but they were, they were tart. They were a little bit sweet, but mostly tart. And everybody loved them. And I bought this huge economy size container of them. So people would stop by for a vitamin wafer. You know, I was encouraging. <laughs> I was pulling people into my office with the, the promise of vitamin C wafers with acerola in them. And this uh, is a lot different life than how I. <laughs> how you find what out what I, your we passion. To, what we were putting in our mouths to have a fun social experience. <laughs> so, uh, so I realized that was the part of the day I liked, and I wanted to go uh, go become a psychologist. And at first I thought I wanted to counsel people and I, I did a, a lot of psychology courses while, while trying to figure out if this was the, the, the change and became, became aware, basically was taken aside and said, you do realize there's a lot of unemployment among um, clinical psychologists and that, that it had, a lot of the interesting work had been sourced down and down. So the master's folks were, were delivering therapy and that, that people in PhDs and clinical psych were fighting for prescription writing privileges. And it, it really had become a, much more of a medicalized model and, and not as interesting. And so I, I realized that, um, that the, uh, you know, that, that, I'm interested in people who are well and trying to function and interested in how they function and not necessarily interested in in illness. And so I, I went back, I did a year as a as an unpaid research assistant and and decided, golly gee, and went into a PhD program that was um, jointly in business and psychology and picked up a master's degree in statistics uh, along the way. And um, really the... the <laughs> <laughs> Just along the way, well, Actually, that one was great because the business people thought I was spending time in the psych department. The psych department people thought I was spending time in the business school. I was really in the stats department, and nobody knew. <laughs> <laughs> it was a very, it was a very laissez-faire department. Nobody knew where you were because um, you had an office in both places. So anytime you're not there, you could be in the other place. Mm. But I loved that. I like, I, I, I like it when no one knows where I am. No one has the right to know where I am. I don't like Outlook has these office schedulers where you can see people's schedule. So I just block out the whole day a lot of the time with, you know, fictitious appointments. I just don't like somebody looking over me. And, and part of it is, you know, I, I like that part of your day you spend writing out a fake day for the, the rest of the world <laughs> to view. <laughs> 
Well, I is it a lot of like? Um, is it a lot of like? Feeding the homeless. And, <laughs> oh, no, they know. can't see what you're doing. They can just see that the time is Oh, blocked. I see. Okay, yeah, okay. so I just write things like, uh, you know, listen to, you know, listen to Shane's podcast. That was on my list today. Right, I right. checked off that box. Um, um, <laughs> that's a productive day. I, I'm sorry that I, I, I held scientific progress up oh, for no. uh, the better part of a day. No, I really enjoyed it. I enjoy it because I think that, um, you know, academics, basically, we write a lot of articles that go through many rounds of revision. Again, these 12 pages about everything you've done wrong. And then uh, eventually we have this beautiful, polished looking pieces, uh, you know, piece of paper that about 12 people read. Yeah, I know. And it's just shared amongst the, <laughs> amongst yourselves. <laughs> so, it's like, I, I mean, I have to read those things to prepare for this. And I'm like, jeez, did you no read that? one is getting, uh, uh, no one's getting any of this information. <laughs> and I can see that it's uh, like, I don't understand half of it. Yeah. And I read these things a lot. And uh, it's yeah. just like, I, I mean, that's a big part of why I'm doing this is because these are, you know what's these, fun- these ideas can be boiled down. You, you know, know what's funny too is that a lot of academics also don't understand it. You know, they cite the people who cite the people who cite the people who wrote something back in the 60s. Mm-hmm. And so we, we really run into that as a problem that, um, that these articles are, are, they're hard to digest even from within their intended audience. And I think sometimes it's because social psychologists have physics envy. And I think, um, gosh, uh, I feel like physics is neat, but I mean, I like learning about it, but it doesn't it doesn't change the way you live your life. But there's some envy, though. It's I think it's Colbert who calls it sciency. You know, we want to feel like things are sciency. You want to put a picture of the brain on your presentations because now it's science. You want to put people in a scanner to do things because that shows you that shows it's science. And we often feel really defensive about it. So you see people out of people talking, calling themselves behavioral scientists. And I, I don't have anything, I guess, against that, but I'm perfectly comfortable being in the social sciences. Um, and, uh, and I think we, we do ourselves a disservice not to get out a little bit more. Um, so of the things I've written that didn't quite make the, what, what, what was, what was interesting to you? I mean, I, I can keep telling you the story of my life, which I, I enjoy. Um, what, what struck you that made you, I mean, other than Pete probably saying she lives in St. Louis, what, what was interesting? Well, one, Pete, Pete was like, it wasn't, first off, it wasn't your work initially before, because before I looked at your work, Pete was just like, she, uh, <laughs> she's really fun and a great talker, likes talking a lot. That's like, that's number one. Uh, when I'm looking for someone, I've had some very, uh, a couple of really shy people on the show and it's actually gone pretty well. But um, that still makes me a little nervous because I'm a little bit of an introvert and sometimes you know, I didn't go to college so I can be intimidated by academics. Sometimes they're intimidated because they're talking with a, a, a you know, professional comedian who they, like, oh, you've been on TV. I mean, you know, that's, when, when, once you're on TV, it's like, uh, everything it's like all the lies just fall apart Shane you are as seen you are is. as seen on TV yeah yeah I know <laughs> I know I'm as seen it but there was a there's a couple things um, that struck me at one we hadn't I haven't talked about any really any of my old work experience and I hadn't talked I uh, the the thing that struck me the most was just the um, 
the uh, work relationships, I think is really interesting. Some of the hierarchy stuff I'm very interested in knowing about um, because I really, you know, I, I like, um, uh, I got into this from like a evolutionary psychology, biology um, interest in the beginning before I started um, broadening my, uh, my interest. But, but I, I think it's interesting. I, I, I mean, your stuff about the, the, um, the, uh, high, um, oh man, I'm, I'm now just having, um, brain farts. The, the too many cooks in the kitchen, um, stuff of, of the, uh, like if you have one or two of these top monkeys around, you're all right, but you get a bunch of them and all of a sudden it messes everything up. I wanted to talk about that. I wanted to talk about, um, Again, some of I think I I wonder if some of your work would relate to some of my old factory jobs and stuff. I I don't know. It may or may not. And there was um some of the stuff on failure. Um, I thought was interesting too because it's actually um a theme that's come up from some other perspectives. Um, from uh like professors in other fields, and so I thought that was interesting. We'll see if we can cover all of that in the remaining time. I also like the idea that someone's sitting on a subway in New York right now and they've had a bad day and they're wondering what to do with their lives and they're feeling like there's no hope and then they're looking up on the subway and there's a learn Sanskrit in four weeks or whatever that ad is. I haven't been to New York in a while. That's always on every subway that I always was like, learn Sanskrit? Who in the world would do that? What's the point of that? And now you've inspired um, a whole... And now and now, like this homeless person's going to go learn Sanskrit because of you. Yeah, homeless person's listening to this podcast, I imagine. Um, and, and then it's going to change your life. That's the narrative that I like to... Um, in my mind for whatever it's worth the um the textbook the harvard uh sanskrit 101 textbook is actually called teach yourself sanskrit (laughs) 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 just in case a little plug a little plug for someone else's book um so actually i i you know you have these interests in in um in uh, you know evolutionary psych and in some of your other podcasts i think you spoke with my friend marty hazelton um, from ucla you know marty i do yeah we we go we go way back like a few years we've been friends for a while yeah. We just had a three margarita lunch just a few months ago. I don't know, maybe was it Chardonnay? I think we talking yeah. about. So I, I, I have a, I'm, I'm really fascinated by humans as animals, and yeah. I think we, and I think parenting really helped me develop that interest <laughs> because you realize that these are animals, right? You're trying to right. civilize them, and I think, uh, you know, we we talk a lot about the rational uh, cognitive animal at work and not the the animal, the human animal, and so I mean, this is kind of quick aside, but I got interested in the menstrual cycle and also just uh, you know getting a little older and and going through fertility uh, issues you you start to have to pay a lot of attention to your menstrual cycle and tell me if you know that's if I'm oversharing I guess we were talking about LSD before Marty was my very first guest and we had talked all about ovulation and stuff we actually didn't we we didn't get super into did you talk about her menstrual cycle though 
Um, no, but you're welcome to share. I, I always, I try to pry every time I see Marty, I try to ask her and every time I feel like it's a bit inappropriate still. <laughs> yes. So please. So fertility on. stuff just got me, you know, paying a, a bit more attention than you, you know, would have. It, it it, is, it's, it's strange to me that that's the thing that's so taboo to talk about. Like that's never, Ooh, and it, Everybody, it's like guys, girls, doesn't matter. Let's never talk about this thing. It, it's so strange because one, it's just a part of life. And two, it's once you get to know what's going on, so mind blowing, so fascinating. Yeah. You know, I don't, and I don't think I know a, a professional woman over 30 who had kids without at least doing something, at least paying attention, at least counting days or being mindful versus, you know, all the way down to, to, you know, these kinds of, you know, invasive assisted mechanisms like IVF. Mm -hmm. People don't talk about it. It's not until, you know, somebody brings it up and then suddenly there's this flood of me too and this and that. And, and the challenges women face, you know, know, and, and, and I'm not going to talk about it now, but I have talked to Marty about personal stuff before, but not on a podcast. And I have, I've been like, you should, she's writing a book right now i'm like that needs to be in your book and she's like i don't know if i want to it's so weird that people i don't know i just think people attach i think an audience attaches to personal stories and personal things a lot more and it's it's a shame that people get skittish when but anyway, go on. And so, so you know, looking at this, I mean, I, I felt like I found, you know, when, when you're taking these kinds of hormones, you, you, you know when you're in your most activated stage, so to speak. And I felt myself cognitively activated. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I did some of my better work, but I was really incapable of having human conversations. I just remember thinking, you know, women go through a, a much lighter version of this every month, and we know so little about it. So Marty and I have chatted about you maybe doing some things in the workplace, and there's been only spotty little amounts of work done. There's been a bunch of work on athletic performance over the cycle, but almost nothing about... There's like the classic Wellesley um, study. But yeah, you could go much deeper than that. Well, the most most interesting study that's been done on it that I found on on the menstrual cycle in the workplace was done with, um, with strippers. With lap dancers, right, right. Did, are you familiar with that study? Yeah, yeah. You can. I, I, I brought it up on the podcast, but we didn't talk about it. Um, so the idea so, was yeah, that the ahead. strippers, this is Jeffrey Miller's work. So the strippers kept track of their um, their earnings every day throughout their cycle, mm-hmm. and when they were ovulating, they did better. and And this was still true for those on the pill, but not just not as strong. And I, I looked at this, and you know, there's this art that you don't they know made what the about mechanism double is. the amount of money when they were ovulating, and they made half as much or something like that when when they were menstruating. And you can think of all kinds of mechanisms that could explain this. I'm forgetting which one he referred to, but you could think that they were. Trying so females might be more job. flirtatious at that mm-hmm. time. It could possibly be that um, skin sometimes appears to be clearer and breasts become more symmetrical. And or the men could, atta- race, could detect the pheromones. They could pheromones, det- absolutely. And it could be that the other women, it could also be that the other women around them back off. Ah, I didn't think about that angle. Yeah. That's so, you know, so that's one of these uh, ideas where I've wanted to pursue it more. But, you know, grant funding has been so difficult lately. It's really dried up. I mean, I was I was very successful early on um, in, in getting grants. And now I've just given up. There have been two, I think, good ideas. I don't know if they're, uh, you know, I, 
I, at least seem good to me, that, that I've really just struggled and can't get funded. And that's one of them. And then some work in behavioral genetics is, is another. But actually, on the subject of grants, so I'm a bit of a Forrest Gump of academia. I ended up testifying before Congress about grant funding in the social sciences. Of all the people in the entire social sciences, there were, I, there, I was the only um, really? academic up there. And the reason for it is because I had this big NSF grant. I don't know, big, not big compared to a lot of grants, but it was big to me uh, about uh, cross-cultural, uh, recognizing emotions across cultures. And there was a Republican freshman congressperson from California who decided that he'd go through the list of NSF grants and pick out the ones whose titles sounded, quote-unquote, silly. So he picked out mine and six others, and he tried to defund it. He tried to actually get the funding taken away. And so I get this call and, and, uh, and it, and then, so they, they end up discussing my work on the, the floor of the House of Representatives. And the, That's amazing. the, the best part of it. What though, was the uh, work specifically? Oh, it's about, um, whether we can recognize emotions more accurately within, co- co- for our members of our own cultural group. Don't so, need it. Caught it. <laughs> well, well, the beauty, actually, and it's, that's, I mean, that's, why is that unimportant? It's so weird what's like important to people that it, it seems like we focus on like these weird extremes of things and no one studying every day. The 99% of how life goes goes completely unexamined. You watch the news, there's three murders and a lottery winning today. No, that's not what life is. You know, and this work in particular. So, uh, so, uh, uh, luckily, I guess timing-wise, just a few months before this, the Army Research Institute had put out a one million dollar call for proposals to take that exact work of mine and turn it into a training program for soldiers. So that's what ended up getting discussed on the House floor was that they, this guy was basically embarrassed, you know, shamed for for looking at just the title and not actually reading the abstract or, or looking at the impact. But that's actually, that's the area of work I will forever be best known for. It, it's the first thing I ever did in grad school, and it's written up in Psych 101 textbooks. And it was this outsider moment because, you know, I traveled, I lived in India for, for half a year and I felt like anybody with a backpack and a passport knows that it's harder to understand emotional expressions from people from a different culture than your own. You make more mistakes. It takes longer to figure out, breed between the lines. You're, you, um, you know, you can have funny faux pas, but you can also really get into trouble not realizing that somebody's just angry at you, bald anger, or that, uh, that you're, uh, you're getting angry and they miss it. And, uh, and, and, so I, I felt this when I worked in India. There were a few times when um, I thought people were angry and they were just getting emphatic and where I didn't think I was listened to until I was legitimately angry. And then they thought, oh, finally, I'll listen to her because now you feel something about it. And I, I'm not saying that's true of everyone in India, but that was something that had struck me. And so I come back to, I start grad school and think, oh, I want to create this this um theory around uh, cultural diversity in the workplace and how do we manage diversity and help people understand each other across cultural boundaries. And very famous people politely explained to me that this was a waste of time because emotions are universal and biologically programmed. Mm. And I said, wait, but but I have a passport and, and a backpack and, and, and I'm pretty sure, you know, when you watch a movie, it's subtitled, you get a lot of it. Uh, surely we, we, we share this common language of nonverbal behavior, but it's easier to understand your own group. And so everyone said, oh, it's universal. My first advisor said, you know, it's really a waste of time. And so I, 
read basically the people who cite the people who cite the people who did something in the late 1960s, which isn't what they said they found. You know, if you actually go back and read their data, they found that if you take photographs of Americans with um, facial expressions, you take these photographs all around the world and show them to people, you take six emotions, happy, sad, angry, fearful, um, afraid, and disgusted, and you, I'm sorry, surprised, and you show these to people and you give them multiple choice tests of six options, they do better than one out of six. Great. Yeah, one out of six, very, very low criterion. Yeah. But then you find that the Americans did best, and the people most similar to the Americans did best, and then the people in Papua New Guinea did the worst. And then my mm. favorite, there's one thing that got suppressed, but one of the collaborators wrote about it in some obscure chapter that I dug up where there was a, a tribe in Papua New Guinea that looked at the American facial expressions that these people are all angry. So, <laughs> so, you know, I looked at this and said, yeah, sure, emotion is universally understood above chance. I mean, you're not throwing darts at a dartboard, but systematically we're more accurate understanding people from our own group. And we called this in-group advantage. The best part is I was so convinced of this. And then my, when my advisor retired and my new advisor, um, Melanie Ambadi, she, she looked at this and she said, you know, this is not a good use of your time. I agree. But your first year in grad, your first year grad student, your time isn't that valuable. So why don't you do this so that you get practice with the research process for when you get a good idea next time? <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. And then this, this paper went through five rounds of review, and the best part was there was a millisecond between when people said it's not true, not true, not true, to when they said it's obvious. Hmm. That's amazing. Well, I mean, it, it, it has me thinking just, uh, I, I mean... Forget about cross-cultural. Well, I guess it's still kind of cross-cultural, but not even different countries. I mean, I have a lot of different groups of friends, and it would be uh, like what I find myself in a group, uh, us doing communicating and laughing about or whatever else would be embarrassing or like make no sense to someone else. You know, I have like... I have like some hick friends that are big into hunting and all this other stuff. I have hippie new age friends that are into weird crystals and vortexes that make no sense. I have, I have like academic friends. I have all sorts of comedian friends. I have my family and it's like my, uh, slightly racist grandparents and <laughs> like all of these different things where it's like in the context of some of the stuff like you understand uh, you know the, the the emotion that's running through something whereas if you just heard like the words or something sometimes it would be misconstrued and emotion is uh, so I, I mean why Rather than me just make a de declaration, why why do you think, um, from your perspective, why do you think um, emotion is so important and these nonverbal cues are so important in how we communicate? Yeah, well, I think that we learn it first, so it always stays primary. You know, babies are just a few days old before they, well, really, once I think once they can focus their eyes well enough to really see your face, they already know. They're responding to you. They're already from the beginning able to express their needs and their wants via these nonverbal cues. And that's all they have for a really long time. 
mean, maybe other people's kids are smarter, but my kids both were three years old by the time they could have really full, complete sentences where you were just talking to them. You could talk to them about your feelings or about about the same kinds of concepts that you were perfectly uh, you know, fluent in with nonverbal language. So I think you don't usually, you know, we don't usually talk about our feelings on a moment by moment basis in normal conversation and these the, we have these cues we have them from the beginning so they're they they're just they're the more practice pathway but also they allow you to be very efficient because you don't even have to have the floor to speak to be able to express your emotions you uh and you can overlay it on top of verbal information getting uh, getting through so there's there are just a lot of reasons why I think nonverbal cues end up being an important back channel. Um, you you also don't you, you they work across animals. So I mean obviously there's a biological and evolutionarily programmed component to emotional expressions, but this area has been very ugly um, in terms of the politics of academia. In part because you know, people make their name by saying the opposite of whatever the what, whatever the trend is at the time. You want to say the opposite, mm-hmm. and so we had this Skinnerian sense of the blank slate. Um, and and Paul Ekman, who who the show Lie to Me is based on, he his he was the one who came around and said it's all programmed. And anytime there's a cultural difference, it's because people are deliberately deviating from this this biological program, deliberately deliberately deceiving, showing a different expression than what they're feeling. But that uh, that that that's the the only time you see a cultural difference is deliberate. But that underlying it, if we all just stop regulating ourselves, we would all look exactly like we would show our emotions perceive others emotions exactly alike and that just seemed preposterous to me um especially yeah. i mean it, it, not to think that uh, i i sometimes get wary about talking about how darn special humans are but we certainly do have an a very expansive set of tools and uh, and we do seem to be able to, given different conditions, be able to adapt so much quicker. I mean, you can't just take a zebra and throw it into some new environment and expect it to do well, you know. But but humans have all of these different tools, and I think even on an epigenetic effect and all of it. Oh, and to your point, so the the the, the first follow up paper we did to this, we looked at. Chinese students in China, Chinese students who who have been living in the U.S. for a year or two, and Chinese Americans and Americans who are of non non Asian ancestry. So these four groups, and they viewed photographs of emotional photographs of Chinese and Americans. And what we found was that the the students, the U.S. Uh, exchange students, actually that who had lived in the U.S. for just a year or two, they were just as good. They were they were now better actually at the American photographs than they were at the Chinese photographs. So to your point about adaptation, we we adapt really quickly, and I think it's it's faster to it's faster to get fluent in the nonverbal cues than to get fluent in the verbal cues. So you start when you first get somewhere and you don't speak the language very well, you're probably more dependent. You're probably paying more attention to the facial expressions and uh, well vocal tone, but in the Chinese case, they're they're. You know, just because of the tonal language, they're probably not paying as much attention to to that. But you have almost this you have this quick learning and almost prioritizing nonverbals over verbals. Mm. Hey, what, what do you think about um, stuff of um, like emotions as a contract kind of 
stuff too is like it's a like uh, emotions are so honest the the reason why emotions are important is because they're sort of out of our control and because they're out of our control you can get a better read on like words are you can act but words are much easier to manipulate than emotions are. And Unless you're good at it. You know, yeah, who was it? Was it Dale Carnegie? Ah, oh, wait, or Yogi Berra. Somebody once said, you know, that, that um, the most important thing in life is sincerity. And if you can fake that, you've ah, really got it. That's funny. But I, you know, the, the, uh, there's been this kind of evolutionary arms race between um, being able to fake your emotions and being able to perceive faked emotions. Mm-hmm. And so we've gotten good, you know, we've, we, because people, because people take so seriously our emotional expressions and assume they're valid, we actually want to get good at faking them. And then because people are faking them, we want to get good at reading faked emotions. Um, but there, there's this idea, that there's this model of emotional expression serving multiple purposes, something called the organon model. And the idea is that emotional expressions are are, are first um, genuine readouts of our internal states. And some of these you can see like disgust, you know, you're propelling the tongue out, you're, you're closing the nasal passages. These are good, these are vestiges of just getting something noxious out of your mouth or fear. You open your eyes wider and now you can see better. So there are some ways in which these are legitimately uh, ways that our, our internal sensations should be showing outwardly. But then you get into, uh, into emotions as an appeal. So I see a bear and it's scary and I'm actually showing you fear to tell you that there's a bear. And the reason why I'm telling you it that, that way is first, I can't speak right now because I don't want to call attention to the bear, from the bear, but, uh, <laughs> but I, I can convey it from really far away. Yeah. You know, there's some reasons why this is a good idea, it's but the, re- the reason I use a fear expression of every, anything is because you know that if spontaneously I were expressing myself, that's what it would look like. So you've got, you're now taking these things that are spontaneous and now you you're see that imitating. face on anyone, you know, it's time to run. Yeah. And then the third is basically, uh, so it's an appeal for action. Mm. And then the third function is is basically conveying like regular language. So you might show a fearful expression just to say, just to even just to to show that you understand what's going on right now. Mm. So you might uh, you might purposely look surprised really just to say to the other person, I did not know that was about to happen. You, you know, I'm on yeah. podcast, so you can't see the expressions I'm yeah, making. Yeah, yeah. Like, like uh, you know, so, someone's someone's talking or something and you're like behind their back and you can tell they're they're uncomfortable so you make like a uncomfortable grimace and and so we think that they're spontaneous and and maybe they are but um we have a lot of control over our facial Mm. expressions and they're so important we develop control over them it becomes automatic over time we're so good at it you know i because i think of myself as like a pretty laid-back guy and i i think that i just um i just like understanding um uh, what's going on and I, I don't I try not to I just don't get myself too worked up about anything like one way or the other good or bad I think I just like having like stepping outside of things and trying to look at things objectively if I can and I feel like that's really hurt me in some of my relationships that I've had where like especially my last girlfriend would uh, we were very good friends um, and she would tell we used to have an old podcast. It was her and I and, and uh, another couple um, each week. But we would sometimes have fights on on the podcast about things. And 
and uh, old listeners would, would hear, I'm, I'm sure, and she would she would tell you this that oftentimes she uh, like what she didn't like was how kind of stoic I would be, um, and, and she would she would often like push buttons and stuff trying to get a reaction out of me because that's how she communicated and that's what she understood really well. So. Uh, yeah, I don't know. It's so yeah. The individual differences are enormous, and you know, when you think about emotional expression, there are two main classes of individual differences, and this is part of a paper that came out recently. Probably the best thing I've done that almost no one cites. Um, and you know, you have stuff. It's sort of orthogonal. The stuff I think is my best stuff, stuff I stuff other people think is my best stuff, and it's it's not a good correlation. But the, but there there are really two kinds of emotional expressiveness, and and one is what we would consider a skill. So if you want people to know you're angry will they know you're angry so it's basically acting ability but then there's expressiveness as a trait in general how much are you wearing your heart on your sleeve and the problem i I'm not to diagnose to, and by the way is she the one who has custody joint custody of your dog yeah mr okay. don nichols yeah <laughs> that's, that's a great dog name yeah. um you know that she was expecting you to be living in that third function of emotional expression communicating your you know using it as as kind of symbolic communication so she, um, actually, no, no, you were, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, let me rephrase. She, she was reading, she was, she was expecting you to be living in the first category, the spontaneous readout of emotional expression right. or other emotional experience. And, uh, she didn't realize you were kind of living in, uh, the, the third, which was that you were really reserving your emotion for when you needed to, to, to say something in particular. But that's tough. You know, we have individual differences and you always project. I mean, this gets us back to earlier, this idea of, you know, what the social world is. You just, you don't, you just look at people and say, if I did that, if that's what my face looked like, here's what I would mean. And this is a problem across cultures, right? Because you don't understand, if you understand a lot less accurately somebody's emotions from a different cultural group, you're going to just make assumptions and value judgments about them rather than realize, oh, wait, when they use their face in this subtly different way, that means X. And it's actually more pernicious than if you're speaking a different verbal language because you realize really quickly, right? So if I started speaking Sanskrit, and by the way, it's a classical language. We don't like to say dead language in the Sanskrit community. We like to say <laughs> classical, but... But you don't speak it. <laughs> but if I suddenly, I don't know, started writing to you in Sanskrit, um, you would realize really quickly and we would get a translator. We would laugh about it, but we would not keep thinking that communication was getting through. Mm. But in, in the case of nonverbal differences, you actually still think communication's getting through because largely it is, maybe 90% it is. But that 10% that's different, you don't realize it and you're just projecting and misunderstanding and attributing to the other party, what you would have, what you would have meant if you did that. Mm. So those differences actually, but, but the fact that we don't realize they're there can be, can be more harmful. That's interesting. And, and uh, again, that makes me think it is one of my fun facts that I enjoy. Uh, I've probably mentioned it before on the podcast, but it's just really relevant here is that uh, a lot of times multilingual people display different kind of personality traits or emotions when they're speaking different languages. And uh, I, I guess I never really thought about how that's just because it's obvious it's part of the communication. That's part of the languages, those nonverbal cues. Um, we should wrap up pretty soon here. Um, this has uh, been fantastic. We should do this again sometime because um, I, I think we could talk forever about some of these subjects. Um, quickly, what's the uh, or, or slowly, however you want to, what, charity of the week? 
Ah, the United Way of St. Louis. All right, fantastic. Go to uh, the Here We Are website, and I will have links and information, and um, and you can check that out. And lastly, um, uh, you know, I'll just give you an opportunity to. I mean, I mean, if you want, I can I can tell you the things that I don't think that we touched on enough, but um, but. Or if you just sure, I mean, this could we be- opened up a whole lot of things. So if you want, if there's one that yeah. you wanted to bring closure to, um, you can. Or I have, um, you know, it doesn't matter to me. Sure. Well, actually, the the um, where I was going with your with with this um, shared interest in in um, evolutionary psychology is I've become really fascinated with the behavioral genetics of interpersonal skills. So I teach a class. I, my, my big teaching is on negotiations, and I teach about emotional intelligence. And in both of these areas, I have students constantly asking me, "Can you really learn this?" Mm-hmm. I, I mean, why you know, should I? I mean, of course, they're taking my class, so I think they at least think maybe it, the option's there. And I realize at some point this is a testable research hypothesis. You know, uh, I, I, I'm sorry to cut you off, and we can continue. I don't, I don't want to forget this question, and my brain doesn't hold on to things for long enough, so I have to rudely interrupt people. Um, so you're an expert at negotiating. To me, that well, I I know that we're all we're negotiating things right now, and. Uh, on like kind of an unconscious level but when you're actually going in for a job and you're negotiating something and you're like what are you being hired for oh i'm an expert at negotiation that i'm like oh that scares me i don't know this person has the upper hand well you know when i go to negotiate for things like cars i always tell people people ask what i do and i tell them i'm trained as a statistician Ah, because okay. you don't want to have a conversation about that. You want them to feel that you're uh, uh, that that uh, that you don't want them to be on their guard. But with right. the dean, it's interesting. In case Dean Mahendra, if you you are ever listening to this podcast, um, you know he basically goes straight to. I mean, he he does the thing you're supposed to do in a negotiation when you think the other party is educated. Is you just go straight to something that's fair, mm-hmm. and ask the other party based on the standards in this industry. Do you think this is fair? And you put it on the table. What are standards? What are standards? So for salary, what are standards? Well, you go out there and you look what comparable salaries are for that level, for for that level of university, for that uh, rank level, and then you just you just use standards. So that actually, when when both sides are you know, when when people know that you know your stuff, and you just go straight to the thing you should be doing anyway, which is uh, treating people fairly. Which at least you know we have this framework in the course that what you know what's fair means something different to everybody, right? But uh, but when you set a target in negotiation, you basically want to set a target as what normally happens in a case like this, mm. and you look for industry standards. So you look for um, comps. You know where what's a comp. So you're, I'm buying a company. What's the normal PE ratio? And then what? What are your earnings? You multiply these, and that's your target. That's what's quote unquote fair. Um, but uh, but can so, I have my agent and managers just get some <laughs> quick little lessons? Sure. <laughs> but uh, but actually, I should say since we I've mentioned fairness, which was a can of worms. You know, there there are three major ideas about what's fair, and everyone just picks the one that's best for them in that circumstance. So you know, there's there's you know, splitting things equally, right? Then there's splitting things based, which is 
there's you know, equality. Then there's splitting things based on on equity. So who deserved more? And then there's splitting things based on need. So who needs more? And and of course you you usually you approach a situation in terms of fairness by by implicitly looking at all three of those and picking out the one that's best for you. It's what a lot of people do. I'm not advocating yeah. that yeah, yeah. But necessarily. Hmm. Um, well, that that's amazing. I. Um, I, I'm like, <laughs> I, I, I have like a million things I want. Um, well, we'll do it again. Yeah, we'll do it again. Well, thank you very much, uh, Hillary Anger. Um, El- Elfenbein. Oh, you did it better the first ah, time. Ah. It's been so long since then. We opened up so many doors and I went to different worlds and back again. Hillary Anger, Elfenbein. Fine. Fine. Ah, I wanted it to be bean before. You no, wanted I, it. Just I, make I it what you want. You know what? Hillary for you, Anger, you can call. Elfenbein. You get to call me <laughs> Elfenbein. No one else does. You can. I, meanwhile, my name's Shane Moss, and people always say Mouse. And I'm like, oh, what's so hard about that? And I butcher everyone. Wait, can you do podcast. what you did on that Comedy Central show where you explain very quickly how to how to do Moss? Or do you oh, remember it? I don't even remember. How you didn't I have did a beard that. then, you so that's been a long it, time it's ago. Like, it's it's like you're like it's hippopotamus it's like, but it's move like the mouse but the uh, the, uh, the uh oh is it what is it uh, it's it's like mouse except the a is an o or or the o is an a and the last s is another e you know moss like hippopotamus except you take the hippo part move that to the and that's an s now uh, I don't remember. I, I haven't told that joke in so many years, and, th- and that's uh, thanks for making me appreciate it again. Because at the time when I did know it, I knew it because I told it roughly a thousand times, and it was like, oh, I have to tell this dumb. Do you joke get again. tired of your jokes? Oh yeah, um, in a hurry. By about the hundredth telling or so, and hopefully that's about the time that I'm recording it for something. And then usually after it's recorded, it's like, oh, okay. Whew, don't have to tell that one anymore. So that's your swan song when you're recording it? That's you, the you, retirement party for your... Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's kind of the opposite for comedians. Like uh, musicians work really hard and um, practice something and then they put out the album and then they go on tour and do everything from that album. Well, maybe that all gets us back to Pete McGraw's uh, theory of what makes things funny, right? Because when you hear music, you like it better every time. Yeah. You know, but, but, but you, and you wouldn't be upset to go to a concert and you hear all these songs you've heard. I've heard this song it. before. Yeah. But I guess for comedy, you, it's not surprising. I not sometimes a, have people uh, come uh, up and yeah, I wish you would have ta- it happened just the other night I wish mm-hmm. you would have told the joke about immigration or whatever and and uh, but uh, that doesn't I I have probably more people come up and say oh, I'm really impressed that you had a whole different act than what I saw on TV or whatever else that's probably a bigger compliment and that means more to me as well it means that I'm working and yeah. it's coming along um, but geez, we talked a lot about me on this podcast. <laughs> I apologize. It's such Not an interesting person. Thank you, Hillary. Uh, I look forward to talking to you again sometime. Me too. Thank you guys so much for listening. And by the way, thanks to all of you that uh, have reviewed the podcast. I went on, I, I go on iTunes and I read the reviews because I'm a nar- narcissist and it brings me uh, so much joy and my eyes start welling up with pride when I see all of the wonderful reviews that you guys have written. It's absolutely amazing. The response that I've gotten so far, please, 
keep it coming. It means so much to me. It inspires me. It makes me want to work harder and do more of these and get more great guests and learn more. And please let me know what I can do to make this podcast better for you. Next week on the program, fantastic guest. If you enjoyed the episode with Nick Epley, you may remember a handful of episodes uh, back. It was released in January, I believe, when his paperback book came out. Uh, one of one of my favorite episodes. Um, if you enjoyed that episode, um, you may also enjoy. This is very uh, Amazon-y. Uh, you may you may also enjoy the upcoming episode. It's actually one of his students. Uh, Adam Waits, who is a, um, a, a amazing person, really. He's uh, considered one of the top 40 professors under 40 um, in, in the, the business schools in America. And he, he very interesting guy. He raps. He uh, helped write a book called The Macro Phenomenal pro basketball almanac uh, presented by free darko and uh we didn't even get to that we didn't even talk about any of that because we were having such an amazing um conversation he's a, a incredibly well-informed uh psychologist and uh if you like this podcast You're absolutely going to love Adam Waits. So tune in next week. Thank you guys so much for listening. You're the best, I imagine. I haven't met all of you. Um, The ones that I I have, I, I very much appreciate. So thank you for listening and talk to you next week. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are.
Hello, I'm Kyle Ayers. I'm the host of Never Seen It, the podcast where comedians rewrite famous movies and TV shows they've never seen, and then we give them a read in studio. This is a clip I want to play for you guys from an episode where Langston Kerman rewrites Scarface. He's never seen it, but he wrote a script based on what he thinks he knows about it. And here's a clip. Give it a listen. All right. Scarface, the new frontier. Interior, happening discotheque. Remember when we call clubs discotheques? <laughs> LOL. The 70s were crazy. Night. The crowd bustles with young, hot Mexicans who are supposed to be Cuban and all are dressed in butterfly collared shirts and pants that look like Jinko jeans and pleated khakis had a really weird baby. <laughs> There's sex in the air and Poppy wants a whiff. <laughs> oh, my God. Scarface, 22 to 45. <laughs> like he's a television audience demographic? <laughs> Devilishly handsome. Not even a little bit Italian looking, so get that out of your dumb brain. Walks through the crowd with the confidence of a man who's going on MTV Cribs with the Ying Yang Twins. <laughs> Does he actually have a scar on his face? Fuck no. Why would he even why would you even ask that? That's not important. What's important is that he is not at all a problematic stereotype <laughs> and that he has come for his cocaine. <laughs> As he approaches the red rope of the VIP, pronounced V-A-P-E in Spanish, oh my God. he spots his dear friend, who is almost certainly going to become his enemy by the end of the film, Smooth Skin. Scarface yells out his signature line. Ciao, Bella. It's me, Scarface. Oh, my God. 